Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Frank Gillette, Vice President and Principal Analyst, to discuss the very large, confusing topic of Internet of Things. Welcome, Frank. Good day. So, Frank, can you help us define or organize IoT? So, there's lots of convoluted definitions, but I like to start by simply saying that it's sensors, identity, or remote control that's outside your smartphone, your tablet, or your PC. Basically, it's something new and different. So when somebody says, oh, well, Uber is Internet of Things because I summon a thing from my phone, I say, no, it's not. All the sensors are inside that computing device that belongs to you. And it only gets interesting and new when, when those little sensors, computers, and communications devices are outside of things that we use today. That's what makes it new. So, Frank, in the definition of Internet of Things, it, mm-hmm. it seems like I should focus as much on the word Internet as I should focus on the word things because yep. there's this concept of connecting things, giving it visibility in the digital world. Correct. The Internet is the means by which these physical things become visible in the digital world. And that's actually what's interesting is that the things are now visible in the digital world. And the Internet is simply the conveyance that gets them connecting it and talking back and forth. So I've created this connective tissue between the digital and physical world, which Correct. is core to this. Yes. We're wrapping physical things with technology. So there's the connection there. Mm-hmm. And so what is, I mean, as people sort of look at the internet of things, what questions, what are they trying to solve for mm-hmm. in, in the applications? Cause they're, they're quite diverse across industries. Yep. They're trying to figure out what is this thing? What's happening in that environment or to that thing, and they're trying to remote control that thing from software. So why don't we take this one by one? Mm-hmm. So the idea of getting an ID from thing, understanding what it is, mm-hmm. and for that matter, where it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could see this being extremely useful in oil and gas exploration, where I just mm-hmm. don't want to send bodies out to understand my true assets out there. Yeah. So identity is where I like to start because it's the overlooked element of the Internet of Things, and it's a, uh, a vital prerequisite to get good security for IoT, because if you can't ensure the digital identity of the thing, you can't be sure that the data are right or that you can block inappropriate or criminal control of your Internet of Things. And the Internet of Things is, is sort of an evolution thing because it was many years ago that RFID became to be in vogue and sort of really changed the very nature of the transportation logistics business. I mean, changed the, the business of UPS, DHL, mm-hmm. FedEx, and mm-hmm. Game. I mean, is, that, is this the next evolution of that or is this sort of a container for things like RFID? So I I would think of um, uh, radio frequency identification tags, those cheap disposable tags, as the precursor to Internet of Things. And uh, the person at MIT who was involved with the early work around RFID is often credited with being the first person to use the term. The RFID tags are passive, though. They're activated from the outside. They don't have their own power or compute. Um, So they were kind of a precursor hint to the Internet of Things, and there's still a useful uh, contribution to it. But what's much more interesting now is when you make that identity actively digital as opposed to passively scanned from the outside, which is the way RFID and its cousin, NFC, uh, near-field communications, that's the way they work. So, Frank, the second one you mentioned is it really focuses on getting status. And mm-hmm. there's two different kinds of examples, and they're, mm-hmm. they're very different from each other. Mm-hmm. One may be what we're used to in terms of getting sort of meter reads or something like that from the utility space or whether that's water levels or what it might be during mm-hmm. or after rainstorms or droughts. Correct. Then the second one is more, is newer, which is what you might get from a fitness 
um, device, mm-hmm. which is I'm actually going to get status of the person's heart rate. I'm going to get status of the right. person's fitness levels, whatever right. it might be. I mean, they're they're divergent on this point. Mm-hmm. You're just really trying to get your environmental status. Is that fair? Yeah, right. So you, you've either built the sensors into a thing so that you can track that thing, or you're effectively putting sensors on or around a thing. And we're mostly not yet putting sensors inside people. And so we're instrumenting people from the outside the same way we instrument a home, a garden, um, uh, a farm. Uh, and so the Fitbit or um, any of the other wearables, the uh, power meter that cyclists use, those all measure what's going on um, around. Actually, the power meter, though, is in the product as opposed to sort of on or around the environment. But yes, those are two ways of thinking about getting the status of what the heck's going on and having that automatically appear in software. And to sort of finish our journey trying to demystify the Internet of Things, the mm-hmm. third one is to control it, which is now that I yep. have, I understand its identity. I understand its status. Mm-hmm. Now I wish to control it to either repair it, change it, or do something to it. Correct. Now, to do that, you, you go from having identity or a sensor to actually an actuator, right? So you have to have some ability to do remote control, and that lets you return uh, to control something in the physical world. I mean, the clunky way is to send a human to do it. More interesting is the automatic light switch, you know, turning back the speed on a generator because it's exhibiting some vibration and wear, and you want to... Uh, chill things out till the maintenance can get there. Um, There's just so many ways. I mean, a great example is demand management, uh, controlling the refrigerators in a grocery store to reduce power consumption during peak time in the afternoon and then pounding the cold air back in after you get past peak. Or the consumer example would be the smart home, right? Controlling Mm -hmm. the temperature. I mean, similar to the the refrigerator example you just gave. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a thermostat example that uh, to help the utilities manage uh, peak demand, they pre-chill the home in the morning before the heat peak, and then they turn off during the peak heat period and let the house gradually warm up, and then they kick the chill back in before you get home from work. Yeah, that's an important example because I think there's a lot of buzz around the Internet of Things about the fitness or about some of the medical pieces. But Mm. if you look at the utility smart grid or demand response, Mm -hmm. which is that has been a concept that has been in motion now for many years, Mm. and you could argue that the Internet of Things was a necessary piece part of the equation to make it work in full. Um, and so it really delivered against the concept versus in some areas where Internet of Things is actually creating new new markets, new products, new experiences type thing. Yes, that's right. Uh, there's a wide variety of applications here. And some of these things we were attempting to do without fully sort of software digitally enabled. And that may be what can be a little bit confusing is, you know, there's industrial control systems that have been around for 20 years, but there's a whole new level you can get to if they now can connect to not only the software of the parent company, but the product maker that made them, um, and even to integrate, say, across the value chain with your partners, uh, your suppliers, and your distributors. Right. There's two points that you raised here that that distinguish the Internet of Things from things that have been in the past, which is mm-hmm. the industrial controls that you mentioned. Mm. And I'll, let's go through them one by one. The first mm. one is self-powering. And mm-hmm. the second mm-hmm. one is the connection from the physical to the digital that gives it, you know, and whether that's being shipped back to the product maker itself or the person actually running running the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, those two pieces appear to distinguish Internet of Things from prior simple monitoring or telemetry systems that might have existed in the past. So I, I'd add another one on, which is analog to digital, right? Because a lot of these systems before were simple dials, you know, where the level of the voltage uh, told you the status of, say, you know, the wind speed or something. Um, so there was an important flip from analog to digital. Um, there was an important um, flip from uh, being isolated to being connected. Um, and then there have been huge improvements in the potential 
to uh, deliver battery power or electricity to places we just couldn't get it before Mm -hmm. that enables you to then take advantage of uh, that connectivity. Um, And then I'll add another advance, which is the, the shrinking of compute devices Basically, the amount of compute you can pack into a tiny space and in a tiny consumption power consumption envelope. So, Frank, if you can give us an example of a common sort of con- consumer-facing IoT use case, right? Mm-hmm. And then juxtapose that to something that's leading edge. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. All right. So, when we look at these these innovations, they've led to some new things like the the tiny uh, wearables that you can put on your body with very long battery life. So. Fitbit One, now several years old, mine's like three and a half years old. The battery lasts a week or two weeks, and it keeps track of how many stairs I walk up because it's got barometric pressure um, and how many steps I've taken. Um, So they squished down uh, power consumption, compute, battery life. They made all this work great. Now, an even more interesting example is the wearable um, temporary sticker tattoos that we see that uh, you can wear on your body. And the best application of that that I've seen is effectively a skull cap you wear in sports to detect uh, risk of concussion. So your coach can pull you um, when the sensor indicates that your head's gotten too too hard a bang. So that's out there in at least pilot and maybe production. And then the out there uh, kinds of technology are Google's research into a contact lens that somehow manages, I'm a little unclear on the details, pulls electrical energy from your body and uses it to measure your insulin levels to keep keep track of that to uh, keep you out of diabetic shock. That's in research. That's not a product. There's a significant buzz around nanotechnology, and part of the focus was Mm. on the materials one would have in clothing Mm -hmm. and using those as sensors. Mm. And is this part of this as well where you're you're looking at the different use of materials and the design of those materials into things that we're very familiar with and really just adding the connectivity to understand its status and its digital meaning? Yeah, I mean, some of those things, there was no connectivity aspect to the materials. I mean... You know, the gloves that had nanomaterials so that uh, they were conductive when I touched the screen. Um, but then there's others that are trying to, say, figure out how to monitor your vitals as part of just being a shirt that you wear. But some of these uh, new possibilities are do come from nanomaterials. But I have to say there's also a huge amount of creativity and innovation going on in the Internet of Things that it doesn't require these kind of innovation that's already uh, available. It seems like there, there's this explosion of the possible here in mm-hmm. terms of, I mean, we, we talked about the power connectivity and sort of the, the thing itself. Mm-hmm. Where are we sitting relative to demand? I mean, how well do uh, these things get picked up? It, it certainly feels like there's an enormous range of possibilities and an enormous range of technologies. And what I've been telling our clients is, look, unlike, say, mobile, cloud, social, and big data, there isn't sort of an easy single technology to understand or an easy, you know, killer app that everyone's going to do. It's extremely diverse and you really have to kind of look at it and say, gee, uh, how might it disrupt me or what opportunities might it create? So I offer sort of three simple ways to ask yourself, huh, how might it affect my company? And the first one is, around designing products and experiences. And so if you do anything that involves designing products or designing experiences, then the Internet of Things is changing that. Because if it involves physical things, it enables new possibilities. 
there seems to be two pieces here. One is where it's very logical that I needed something to be connected. So I have, mm. a, I have a heart rate monitor in a prior world. Now I have a fully connected sort of fitness environment. That seems like a very logical leap in terms of designing products and experiences. Mm-hmm. Your medical one is very different, which is I'm actually creating a new kind of experience because I can mm-hmm. envision a role of technology that wasn't obvious or wasn't logical. I mean, there's two parts. One is sort of fixing old processes that in the cold, hard light of day, like why would that be that way? Yeah. Into also, I can design a whole set of different kinds Correct. of experiences. You can envision completely new things as well as upgrading existing ones. Mm-hmm. Now, th- once those things or, or places are internet enabled, someone's got to run them. So this is the second scenario that I talk about, which is using assets to run connected business processes. So a consumer modifies the, the way they exercise based on feedback from sensors about uh, you know, whether they've got a concussion or how hard they're working on their, their cycling workout. Um, a manufacturing line changes the way they operate uh, based on uh, the information they get about vibration, uh, parts outages, all those things. So it's a, uh, an integration experience, particularly for business to, businesses to say, now, how do I get all this stuff to work together and what new possibilities do emerge for me to save money or to work better with my customers? Now, the, the third scenario, uh, which is the new one in the, the, the research that I'm working on, besides besides designing products and using uh, connected assets, is consuming insights. So once you have products spitting out uh, data or or assets spitting out information about business processes, um, there are third parties who want to get that. So insurance companies, health insurers, governments um, would all love to see other people's IoT data. So if you can get access to that, the insights from that data can change how you run your business. So if your customer can share you know, the status of your water system, your smoke detectors, um, maintenance on your automobile, then you as a bank or an insurer care a lot about, oh, are they taking care of the asset that I'm insuring or lending the money against? Or, you know, are you really putting that asset to use to make money that will enable you to pay back the loan I gave you? The same is true in the industrial context, right? Mm. So that you would want to understand or receive that data from your supply chain or your Mm -hmm. ecosystem that way as well. Yeah. So, right. So having visibility to other people's IoT data is a, is the third scenario that you might find yourself in. So even if you don't design products and, and you don't really use assets to run your business, right. uh, you still are interested in other people's data, like, say, weather might still have an impact on, on what you do. Right. And this is part of the creativity of the Internet of Things, because apart from the technology revolution, for that matter, the power revolution that's underpinning this is that you know, if you look at it from a GE or Siemens perspective on airplane engines, this kind of connectivity and insights allows them to put a whole different economic model in place for yes. usage-based. So the engine can be done based upon air miles, not sort of on the complete lease of it all. Right. This is really, this has the opportunity to change the way the industries work. Correct. So we see sort of incremental opportunities. You know, if all you have is an office building and you actually don't care about anybody else's assets in the world, then your, your opportunity is relatively incremental because it saves some money on uh, comfort in the building, you know, monitor a little bit of safety stuff to avoid bad events, and maybe make your employees a bit more productive and happy because you're diddling with the lighting to get past the lunch lull and uh, get them like mellowed out before they go home and fight traffic. Um, but if, uh, if you're a product company, the first thing you have to be asking yourself is, am I headed for product as a service? 
am I no longer in the business of boxing widgets to, to put in the distribution channel, but rather in the business of delivering a better experience? So that's the, what the jet engine guys are asking themselves is, hmm, I'm in the business of delivering you know, flying hours, not in the business of delivering jet engines. And that changes how they think the whole, the whole business model. So I want to move this conversation to fertilizer for a second. <laughs> so you, they have sensors placed upon plants and their leaves to understand mm-hmm. the absorption of nutrients and the absorption of water based mm-hmm. upon different fertilizing um, ingredients and concentrations. Yep. And that's happening now. And we, we talk a lot about sort of the future innovation, but against the backdrop of, of global warming and the impacts of droughts, mm. these learnings, this ability to optimize in terms of how can I grow in different climates and different conditions, mm-hmm. I mean, these, this is a big societal opportunity that's underpinning this as well. This is not sort of just from a business context, but there's a societal push here as well. So agriculture is a great example where the primary value of the Internet of Things is in driving improvements in efficiency and yield. Yeah, it just strikes me that as you look at these applications in different industries, at first blush, it's sort of head-scratching why I would put a a sensor on a leaf or a stem for fertilizer. I mean, that is that's an extraordinary, innovative application. And it makes perfect sense at some level. And I'm sure that across these different industries, there's all sorts of things that focus on, at one hand, making existing processes go better, more efficient, whatever. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, make it so that it's it's better for customers. It actually delivers greater value into the marketplace. Yeah, that's right. So there's an awful lot of company operations that actually have influence on and are connected to the customer experience. And some of them are quite direct if you're, say, a rental car company and people are walking into your facility or amusement park. But there's a lot of, of processes that you don't realize at first have a big bearing on on customer experience. So you look at a manufacturing line for an automobile, if you can remote control that line better to say adjust parts placement and give guidance to workers, then you can do what a couple of manufacturers do today, which is literally build a million automobiles and every one of them is unique. So this is the this is the holy grail of mass customization. Yes. This is so the idea that I'm not going to put the car in the lot and then I'm buying from the lot. I'm actually yes. designing from here, and the car's built well, for me. Correct. And it's not just built for you with you know customization down to the software level and the components. Um, it's also on a faster timetable because there's much better visibility to the entire production process. And the dealership's going to get better information about you. I mean, you can change the whole experience. So an overlooked part of uh, the industrial IoT phenomena is this potential to really uh, – improve the customer experience, drive uh, better customer affinity, and uh, not just do efficiency. And so I'm telling our clients, wow, when you start thinking about how to instrument and improve your operation with IoT, you have to think about the extra potential to build in the possibility, a few extra sensors, a better software platform, so you got more flexibility to go after the customer journey, the customer experience. Frank, how ready are organizations to take on IoT? Uh, generally not. So uh, we we talked about uh, designing products and experiences, running operations. Notice those two stakeholders are not ones that have been in the digital conversation much yet. Um, so they're not in the IT organization. They're not in the marketing organization. Um, consuming insights, well, marketing is tied into to some of that. So that one's a, a little more. But in general, they aren't. Mm-hmm. And even for the ones that are, what they quickly figure out is, um, they're missing some piece that they have to go somewhere else in their organization to get, right. or they actually need outside expertise 
from consultants and, and uh, vendors because there's so many new things we're trying to bring together here that it's it's actually quite hard. So th- there's this brilliant synthesis of, of technologies here. You have you have power, you have computing, you have the device itself, you have the imagination of applications, and you just talked a little bit about sort of the readiness issue. So I'm an I'm an executive, and I'm and I'm I hear all the buzz around Internet of Things. Mm. In some cases it's obvious, in some cases it's mysterious to me. What does it mean to me? What 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 is my game plan for this year mm. to sort of corral this in my head mm-hmm. and bring it into my organization in, in, in a way that is both appropriate for me and recognizes that if my competitors innovate at a faster clip, I may be put at a very quick disadvantage. So in, in the simple terms that we use today, the first question to ask yourself is, what kind of um, assets do you use at your company? And if what you have is primarily office buildings and employees, then it's probably pretty simple. You're going to keep watching it, but you don't need to jump. Um, I mean, you want to save the energy. You want to make your employees happier, all that stuff, but no big deal. If you have a lot of assets on the books or you depend on big assets to run your business, then you should be all over this looking for potential not only to improve your efficiency, but also to go after improving your customer experience. And then some companies further are in the business of designing products or experiences and they have a whole other level to get to that is the most transformative and they needed to be on it yesterday. Thanks, Frank, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Frank. You're welcome. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.